Hi, everyone. Just before we get going, I want to remind you that everything we talk about and discuss should not be considered as investment advice. The purpose of what we talk about on Catherine Murray Media and Markets on YouTube, as well as Catherine Murray in conversation with on my podcast, should be viewed as informational and entertainment purposes only. Please definitely do your own research, your own homework, and definitely consult an investment professional before making any investment decisions. And also to note, some of us might hold positions in some of the stocks uh, that we discuss. Um, Brennan, amazing to be able to uh, speak with you again. Uh, it's been a while and, and certainly, you know, I've, I've seen you and your company at the top of the charts in terms of performance uh, amongst the hedge fund community. Uh, so congrats on that. That's that's pretty big. Thank you. Yeah. So so we want to get your views. <laughs> so sure. um, let, let me start there because um, you I, I read your April note and um, you did uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but you did say you can't see any major market disruptions occurring. We've obviously had a lot of volatility over the past couple of days. Uh, inflation has picked up much more than anybody thought yesterday. Is that not going to be a major market disruption? Because it's kind of what it's feeling like. It's it's tough to say how that's necessarily going to disrupt the market. I mean, there, there's been this narrative over the last you know, several months that I 100% disagreed with. And that was that, oh, well, interest rates are low and inflation's low. So sky's the moon or, you know, mm -hmm. things can just go where up forever because there's no discount rate on a growth stock. And so sure in 2000, things got out of hand 12 times sales, but you know, with interest rates zero, let's, let's go 20 times sales. Let's go 30 times sales. Let's go 60 times sales. Let's look at Snowflake with 700 million in revenues, a hundred billion dollar market cap. Let's look at Shopify with 2 billion in revenues and a hundred billion dollar market cap. There is no limit. Right. And you know, what ends up happening is that, you know, when things are going well, people sort of backdate their thesis. Right. So, They'll sit there and, and they'll say, oh, well, you know, look how expensive these stocks are. Let's justify it after the fact with with, with some other factor. And that factor was low inflation uh, and low interest rates forever. And, you know, you just can't you can say low interest rates forever, but there, there's always risk. I mean, there's not risk that, you know, uh, um, a great company goes bankrupt necessarily, but that risk could be that, you know, they don't grow at 30% for the next five years. They only grow at 20% for the last, you know, three of those or something. So mm -hmm. there's always risk. Even if you're a secular grower, your growth rate might be cyclical. So, you know, the problem you had there was extended valuations and, you know, and we're seeing that now, right? Like now everyone's turning on all these high value, you know, super high value, uh, tech stocks and all of these super high secular winter uh, electric vehicle stocks. And, you know, it's really just a rationalization um, that brings you back uh, to where, you know, things used to be. I, I used to cover software even in 2000. And even back then I had a fairly tight discipline that a price sales multiple equates to a theoretical proxy for a price earnings multiple. And in that vein, you would almost never pay more than seven or eight times, let's say it's growing. So give them credit for the growth, look at another couple of years. You would never pay more than um, seven or eight times two years out earnings. Um, yeah. You know, when you look at, at what we did last year, you know, last year we made a nice pass on Tesla. Um, it, it just, 
the company, when people look at Tesla, they always say, oh, well, you know, look, it was a bubble valuation. That's not true. That stock was flat for roughly six years while the company grew by 700%. It was amazing. People didn't realize the stock was pretty much flat. And um, it basically bounced between post-split, you know, 35, 40, uh, 40 bucks. While the company grew at 700%, it's amazing that the short stayed short in, in the face of that kind of growth. But the entire trade on Tesla under that, you know, under that vein, from 40 bucks to like 350, that's just a cap a catch up trade to their growth. You could argue it was overvalued in the first place, but that was just a catch up trade to the growth. Everything beyond 400, that was valuation explosion all the way up to 900 bucks. So, mm. you know, I never saw it as a bubble. We sold our stock as, as it went through four or 500 bucks because, you know, it had caught up. But, you know, that's just the kind of thing where, where people got a lot of hands. So I look at it and my internal model saying 2024, 2025, they'll probably be earning 15 bucks a share. So if they're going to earn 15 bucks a share and slow down to 30 or 20% growth, then I'll give them 30 times earnings because it's a great company. That's 450 bucks. And six months ago, we were at 900. And you can see it with all of them. I think Shopify should be at eight times sales, not 15 times sales. Great company. I would say that about almost any great company. And when I say, you know, seven, eight times sales, I'm talking two years out, give them two years of growth and then reevaluate. But, you know, it's a lot of, that's the stuff that's getting attacked right now. The stuff where the valuation was through the roof, the more value stuff, that stuff is not uh, taking the same level of pain. But, you know, again, you got to the point where this high value tech was 50% of the S&P 500, 50%. They say FANG was 27%, wow. but the reality is all of tech was pushing 50, right? I mean, you have Netflix, but what about NVIDIA, right? You have, you know, um, Microsoft, but what about Cisco? These are not small companies, right? So, you know, tech was a much, once Tesla went in, that was another 4%. So, you know, you had this point where the highest valuation portions of the market were half of the S&P 500. And, you know, even in small caps, because I know a lot of a lot of your viewers might might look at small caps, you had a similar situation where, you know, you look at the Russell 2000 and, you know, to be like the 10th company in the Russell 2000 two years ago, you had to have a market cap of like three, four billion. Now, all of a sudden, GameStop is the number one stock in the Russell 2000 at $20 billion. So, you know, what happens to the, to the valuation of the Russell 2000? Why did it outpace the S&P 500 by so much after five years of lagging? By yeah. so much, it, it outperformed for like you know, for, um, for about three, four months there. And that's because all of a sudden GameStop and DraftKings became the largest companies um, in the Russell 2000. I mean, GameStop, right? I mean, yeah. that, that's your largest holding in the Russell 2000, I think right now. So you've seen this whole reconstitution of the market. So I, going back to your original point, I don't see the, 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 the systemic risk in the market. Um, but I see a lot of valuation risk and I, I am worried. I am worried about inflation. I am actually worried about inflation. I don't know how that affects the stock market necessarily. It affects interest rates, mm -hmm. but the inflation we're talking about, and, and there's a lot of controversies, a lot of economists say, we don't think that inflation is going to be that bad. I listen to conference calls. I'm not looking at data and a lot of data is backward looking. I'm listening to conference calls and the conference calls, you know, we own, um, 
we own uh, a countertop manufacturers and door manufacturers. And they're all saying like, yes, our costs are going up. Our costs are going up and raw materials will be 30% of our, um, of our cost of sales. And so next quarter, look for our gross margins to go down, but we're already starting to increase prices. And that's not going to show up for another you know, quarter. It's not going to show up for another quarter or two. Those prices will hit in Q3, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I don't know, like personally, how much online shopping have you done in the last couple of months? Not much. I not mean, much. If okay. I, I, what do I need? Right. And a lot of people, <laughs> yeah, right. And a lot of people feel the same way, but um, you know, I keep track of some retail stocks. We, we've made some good money on Levi's. I'm a big fan of this whole reopening, you know, denim cycle that's going on. And you know, if you look at Levi's, if you look at Urban Outfitters, if you look at American Eagle, the one, the thing you're seeing in apparel right now, and, and you can see it in appliances too, you know, look at Lowe's and Home Depot. The other thing you're seeing is that people aren't giving out the discounts. The sales aren't there. Things aren't going 30, 40% off. They all yeah. tightened up inventory. And so you've got raw materials coming up, prices coming up in, you know, industrial goods, but even in retail goods, you're not getting the same discounting. And that's a form of inflation that I don't think is showing up in the numbers either. No, so, that, that's, that's uh, yeah, I go concerns. ahead. I know I, I have concerns there on inflation, but again, the companies are going to reap the benefits of that inflation, right? They're gonna, re- they're, they're gonna raise costs and they may hold margin. The other big question mark is, is labor inflation. Labor is like half of all these companies costs, right? You always think mm-hmm. like a guy who makes doors or something, you know, it's all raw materials. No, labor is a huge component. And right now the big problem, you can hear it from Uber and Lyft, they're having to pay their drivers. You have to pay employees more because they're getting paid to stay home. And that's an issue. So right now you're paying people more to come to work, but in two quarters, when the stimulus checks end, all those people come back to work and the market gets flooded and then, you know, labor rates will probably flatline for a while, but they're all, they may, they may already be elevated based on what's happening in the, in the next couple of months while it's like, we've got demand, but we don't have people in order to make sure that we can fulfill that demand. Um, so you, you do have some interesting factors there where you say, well, is labor going to be a problem? Because labor is a huge point. Is labor going to be a problem in six months? It might not be a problem in six months. Then inflation might not be so bad. I suspect labor will be a problem in six months because McDonald's just announced that they're you know, increasing their employees' salaries uh, this morning. And you can't have like, oh, we're going to give this guy 15 bucks an hour because he's here now. But the guy who starts in, in November, he's only getting 12. Like it doesn't, you're, you're going to end up yeah. paying more for everyone based on the raises you gave today. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm a little, uh, I'm a little, you know, cautious on that, but there are ways to win there. Yeah. Yeah. There are, there are certain sectors and stocks to, um, to buy, to, yeah. to head, not even hedge, but to really benefit. Um, yeah. on, on that potential move. But let me ask you this on the inflation front, because when we really think about um, the government debt loads around the world, which I know we're going to touch upon as well, because you, you did mention that in, in, the, uh, in your April note, um, but you know they've been at this game since the financial crisis, and they haven't been able to really spur growth. So I'm sitting here wondering a lot about stagflation. So inflation and no growth, is, is that on your radar? Are you concerned about that? And if that's the case, what do you invest in? And what does that really mean for the equity market? So do you, I mean, do you want to still own real estate, load up on real estate? What do you do? 
Well, you, you could you could get stagflation. You could get no real real growth. And, and I'll also mention anecdotally because you know we're bottom up. So I listen to a lot of conference calls, and one of our biggest winners uh, last quarter was a company who basically said, "Hey, we thought we were going to earn five bucks a share. Turns out we're going to earn ten bucks a share. Like just a, a massive blowout earnings." But when you when you dug deep, you said, "Well." Okay, so what happened here? What were your volumes up year over year? And more and more, you hear volumes were up one to two percent, revenues were up thirty percent, earnings were up twenty percent. The volumes aren't growing, and that goes to your point that are you not going to see real, you know, real GDP growth? So, so do we have a situation right now where we're seeing the growth in the companies, but we're not seeing the growth? in the units and it it looks like real growth but the fact but but because the inflation might be coming later um does that create a situation where you know the stagflation is there later but the signs are there now right and so again that's something i'm i'm a little concerned about real estate uh is interesting um real estate your big risk there is is uh, do you think that at some point rates have to go up? If rates have to go up at some point, and they probably do from zero, that's not good for real estate. So you have a real asset, but you've got a real asset that's um, uh, that's uh, interest rate dependent, right? Right. So I would. I, I'm, I'm going to say this. But I'm not. Mm -hmm. I'm not historically a resource guy. But we have put a substantial amount of our capital uh, into the gold trade uh, recently, and I'm not, I'm not a resource guy, and I'm not a gold guy, and I'm not an anti-fiat currency guy. And my mentor is probably the most well-known <laughs> guy, you know, in in North America, if not the world. Um, but uh, but recently, I just I th I think that you could have a very big setup for a gold move above two thousand. And should some of the Bitcoin investors come back to gold, uh, you could see a copper-like move in gold. And I mean, I don't want to get too out of control, but you could see a situation where copper goes to six or seven on supply and demand, but gold could go twenty five hundred, three thousand for all I know. Like people so, talk about people talk about Bitcoin being two trillion dollars or something, and gold's nine trillion. Oh, it's got more room to go, but all the cryptocurrencies put together, I think, are twelve trillion. So, you know, you're you're mm -hmm. kind of there, and and you just wonder whether a lot of people I know swap their money from gold to 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 Bitcoin because of fear of missing out or whatever. If Bitcoin you know, has a check back, like the kind of crap that happens today. It doesn't look too stable on the way up and it doesn't look too stable on the way down. If these people say, look, I'm looking for inflation protected stability and they move back into gold, there's a lot more money to move that way uh, now. Mm -hmm. And you won't find any sell. You're not going to be met with any selling on the other side. I can tell you anyone who's still left in gold ain't selling it. You're going to be met with yeah. zero supply if you try to get back in and, and, I could see it. I'm not a gold guy, so I don't want anyone taking I my know. advice here, right? I don't want anyone <laughs> taking my advice. I'm just telling you what I'm doing, but I will be the first to admit I'm not an authority on the subject. Okay, so that that's amazing. Uh, Brandon, there's a lot there, though. I, I want to go back for one second. Did you say your mentor in the business is a gold guy? Yeah, I, I am. Uh, my first uh, my first job was at Sprott Securities. I was actually Eric Sprott's associate. Wow. Um, you know, back, I would call them formative years, but from, uh, 
from 96 to uh, to when uh, Sprott, uh, when Eric left to form Sprott Asset Management. Um, I didn't go with him. I, I stayed uh, to be a tech analyst, but uh, I was there for, um, you know, for that first, uh, for his first big move into gold in, in 1999 that, and he was, he is the foremost expert uh, on the space. Um, so hopefully I, I grabbed some knowledge through osmosis there. You must have. Uh, where, sorry, where was that? That was before he left to, to form his company? What, so, what Eric's, so Eric was the, uh, Eric was the uh, CEO of Sprott Securities, which was a broker dealer now known as Cormark Securities. Okay. And in 2000, uh, he left to, he always had, um, he always had a, a fund uh, with Sprott Securities, but, but he basically broke it off to start Sprott Asset Management as a standalone. Um, so that was, Got that's it. really where, and, and a bunch of us bought the brokerage uh, operations uh, from him. Okay, understood. Yeah. It's pretty amazing though that you were a, a gold associate and then moved into tech. Well, I wasn't. Yeah, I, I wasn't a gold. I mean, Eric was pretty generalist, so I started focusing on on tech exclusively in like late ninety eight, ninety nine. Okay. Um, so I still uh, worked with. Uh, I still worked with him a bit at that point, but the gold call. I wasn't involved with the gold call, but, you know, we had morning meetings, we had discussions, you know, so again, that's more of a, I hope stuff sunk in through osmosis yeah. <laughs> rather than I was looking at, at gold stocks specifically. I was, I was looking at tech and my interaction by the time late 99 rolled around was, uh, was looking at shorting tech into the, into the tech uh, bubble. Hmm. So that was, um, that was, you know, sort of a different, I mean, when he had those, that, that just unbelievable run, he was actually both short tech, like shorting Amazon at 500 mm. and buying gold stocks when gold was at 500. Like it was wow. one of the all time, I got both sides of this market figured out calls Wow. <laughs> that, that he was, that he was making. Okay. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. um, and it's also amazing that you are, you know, going into gold because, you know, for as long as I've known you as well, I, I, I don't ever think of you as, as a gold guy. So here no. we are. Since we're on the topic though, you did bring us a number of um, your gold picks today. Why don't we just talk about a few? Well, I don't, I mean, I don't have a lot of gold. I mean, I have a lot of stocks in there. So gold, you know, our biggest one was really just buying the GLDs. I mean, that's the easiest way to, to, to do it. Um, you know, obviously the stocks will move twice as, as far. So uh, you can stand some safer uh, large caps like a, like a Kirkland Lake. I mean, if I think gold is, if, because I think gold's going up, I don't really feel like taking the political risk. Um, there just doesn't seem to be any point. I mean, the, the one thing I have learned over the years is that um, if you're going to bet on gold, or you're going to bet on copper, or you're going to bet on a commodity, or you're going to bet on oil, you know, you can put a little money in something that triples. You can put a lot of money in something that doubles. And sometimes it's easier just to eliminate the risk and put a lot of money in something uh, that's going to double. Just simplify your life, get the same aggregate return, uh, and then take the risk off because it's something a little easier. So, you know, the gold stocks that we own currently, uh, so we have Kirkland Lake. I mean, that that's big. That's Canadian. Um, the other Canadian ones that we, the other Canadian one we own would be uh, Victoria Gold. Um, and then there's uh, another company in Australia called uh, 
Carora, which is uh, symbols uh, K-R-R. Australia is obviously pretty safe. Um, those mm -hmm. are probably the safest ways to do it. Or you could buy uh, the GDX, uh, which would be the US ETF. And I can't remember, mm -hmm. there's a Canadian ETF as well. Just be aware when you're buying the, the ETF, it's all Freeport, Newmont, Barrick. I mean, it's like half of the... It's like buying the the triple Qs, right? Like seventy percent right. of your holding is five stocks, not particularly right. risky stocks. But you know, I think if if you want to play it simple, just Kirkland Lake's probably easy. And if you want to go down a little bit down the risk curve, Victoria Gold is uh, is a Canadian miner as well. It's eliminate mm -hmm. all the superfluous factors. I don't do. Uh, I don't do exp exploration. It's just too long. There's a permitting process. Maybe they get bought. You know, they probably aren't producing by the time the cycle's over. And I'm not a big fan of of um, of developing mines either because the inflation is going to hit them while they develop. I want producers. I want cash flow. I want good balance sheets. You know, I, I know that sounds simple and boring, but you know, they will move twice as much as gold moves. Got it. So, so that's what you're doing on the inflation protection front, mm -hmm. um, going long gold. Um, but what about um, you know some of the other areas that you think will benefit from inflation? Yeah, I mean, I still we're still really big fans of the housing trade. Um, that's a big one for me. I mean, so so one of the issues you're going to run into the housing trade right now is home builders versus um, building products guys. So. Home builders are somewhat susceptible to uh, to price slowdown, so they're going to their costs are going to go up. Um, and if if they can't raise price, that might squeeze them. So we've shifted um, we've shifted to building products. Uh, so we own companies like I'm, I'm sure everyone's heard of Caesar Stone, um, or a lot of people have heard of Caesar Stone. The stock market hasn't heard of Caesar Stone. It used to be a large, uh, well-followed company five years ago, and then uh, Chinese competition and uh, the the basically knocked their margins and then everyone abandoned it. Um, and so they're just turning it around now. And so uh, we're really, uh, it's a brand name, right? Like people buy quartz, they say, I got a Caesar stone counter. They don't even think of the, of the brand. So I'm a big fan uh, oh. of Caesar stone. We've owned Masonite, which is a formerly Canadian company, uh, probably the, I think it's the second largest door manufacturer next to Geldwin, but it's a pure play, uh, almost pure play on North American residential. Um, so they, they actually, you know, they did a study a couple of years ago that said that the one thing that people are willing to do is pay more for doors. It's just an underpriced part of people's homes relative to how much they think that they should cost. So they have a lot of pricing power. There's only two players and they've both been following each other in terms of of pricing so they seem to have a lot of leeway to raise prices there and it's impossible to bring on new capacity like these guys are entrenched hmm. um so that's one way to do it uh so those are you know those are good yeah. ways to do it for sure and also you know there's some apparel where you know inflation doesn't have to be raising prices like i said before it has to be lowering discounts so that's a reopening denim cycle so everyone has their sweatpants Everyone bought their five pairs of Lululemons last year. You know, good thing about Lululemon is it's a very high quality product that lasts a long time. You don't need to buy any more Lululemons probably for another, you know, three, four years. And you can see that stock has not done very well. But, you know, the problem with Lululemons is that it's an elastic waistband. So unless you're stepping on the scale, you know, every couple of days to check stuff out, you try on those jeans that have been sitting in your closet for a year ago. And, you know, and maybe you lost a couple pounds, maybe you gained a couple pounds. <laughs> All you know is they're a little loose 
or they're a little, or you can't get that button done up and now you need a new pair of jeans. And so the denim cycle is big right now. Levi's is one of the top players along with the Gap and um, uh, Contour Brands and American Eagle, but Levi's is a pure play. It's a heritage brand. And um, mm -hmm. there's also a, there's a fashion change, right? So people have gone from skinny jeans. Now you're starting, you're starting to see people wear baggier jeans and, um, you know, and mom jeans, I guess they call them, and flare jeans at the bottom. I bought, I'm not a mom and I bought a pair of mom jeans so, and they do not look good. Okay, um, but, but that's <laughs> the style. But that's the style they're saying. The you were, higher you were weight. Skinny. If anybody, if anybody doesn't know what a mom jean jean is, it means it's just a higher waist. And, and it's a looser. And it's a looser fit. Oh, yeah. Isn't that loose? Maybe that well, was some people, so, some of them, some of the mom jeans are higher fit, and then they're they're tight around the hips, and then they flare out more at the bottom. But they're definitely distinguished. They're definitely distinction from um, mom jeans and and skinny jeans, which are which are almost like denim leggings, right? So. Um, skinny jeans are still the most searched, but they're losing share uh, to more relaxed fits. And this is like okay. a new thing, right? So, so wait, I, I got to stop you there for one yeah, second, though, yeah, Brandon, because yeah. um, talking I, fashion, I love it. No, yeah, well, that's why I'm stopping you. I actually used to do equity research covering specialty retail at William Blair going back to 1997 for a mm -hmm. few years. Right. And I worked for a real an excellent analyst. He was tough, tough, tough on me. Um, but you know, he, he was brilliant. He could, you know, he, he basically taught me to, you know, read numbers like you would read literature. So to your point about discounting, we would go in and do store checks year over year, quarter over quarter, whatever it was. And, you know, we would literally check how much discounting there was. And therefore you go back and put in your Excel spreadsheet and you know, if they're going to beat on the gross margin or the operating profit or miss, and therefore the stock gets impacted. So, so, you know, he was, he was just so great uh, in terms of a mentor and, and teaching me how to do all this. But, you know, one of the things that you have to know and get right when you buy retail is understanding um, the trends. And so to your point about jeans, you're right. I mean, if you're right on this trend, it will do incredibly well. My question to you is, because I haven't really been following the gene trend. How do you know that this is a new trend? Um, well, I mean, obviously there's a lot of anecdotal evidence among the others, but actually my ace in the hole in terms of knowing what the denim trends is, is I have a, I have a, um, a 19 year old daughter. Okay. And I can tell you like her and her friends and whatever, and you know, you can see the red tab, right? So I know Levi's is an up and coming brand among, um, among, you know, the kids who are, you know, the late teenagers, like early teenagers where your parents still influencing, you're probably still going to American Eagle um, to get your jeans. But for the more fashion forward ones, it, you're, you're buying Levi's right now. And then, you know, for people, you know, my age or something, you're probably still going, you know, you're still buying, like, if you're buying high end jeans, you're still buying, you know, whatever. True religion? Or, yeah, like, well, our true religion hasn't um, been as, Maybe among women, but among men, you don't see as much true religion. But, but you know, the guys will buy like Page or AG or you know stuff like that. Um, okay. So that's you know, but but again, it's usually the younger crowd that that drives us because they they buy more frequently. Um, and, and and so it, so from a valuation perspective, or people understanding that Levi Levi is this is a stock to own. I mean, is that 
where are we in terms of the stock price? Well, I mean, I, I wish, yeah, I mean, I wish it was cheaper. I mean, we bought it, you know, we've only made 50% on it, which, you know, sounds great, but in the context of the last, you know, five months in retail, that's probably a little better than average. Um, but uh, in terms of valuation, so now the trick you run into is what they're guiding to and what I think is, is possible. Um, so they're guiding, I mean, I can look it up right here, but they're, uh, they're guiding to, and the models are all saying uh, this stock trades at, and again, this year's kind of a, a mess. You got easy comparisons and things are coming up, but for next year, the street thinks that they'll earn about a buck 40. So it's trading about 20 times that. And then they think they'll earn a buck 60. The key for me is that the, the company is expected to do uh, EBITDA margins of 15%. Okay. And 15% sounds good, but their gross margins right now are like high 50s. Okay. So hmm. if you were to compare that to, there aren't too many retailers that do high 50s gross margins, right? No. The one that happens to do high 50s gross margins is Lululemon. And Lululemon's high 50 gross margins. And again, they're all retail. Levi's is mostly direct retail, whereas whereas Lululemon's you can only get on their website in their store, but Levi's moving a little more in that direction. But their 58% gross margins translate into 25% EBITDA margins, right? So if you go sort of like, let's look at the art of the possible here um, <laughs> on Levi's, right? And it's tough uh -huh. to do, so you got to have that margin for error. So right now I'm at 20 times earnings. I'm comfortable with that on what's probably a three to four year cycle on, on denim. Um, but if they can achieve 20 or 25%, but even if they can achieve 20% EBITDA margins, that buck 60 that's expected to happen in two years on what I think is fairly reasonable growth expectations, that buck 60 could easily be 220. And if people like, like Levi's, they say, wow, this is a brand again. This is a hot brand again. You can get that sort of brand you know, that premium brand multiple, that heritage brand multiple, clean balance sheet, you get another bit on that. You know, that that $2 to 230 a share in earnings, that could trade at, you know, 20 to 25, you could see a $50 stock. I'm not saying you will, but you, mm -hmm. you could. The hmm. question is, how far do they want to push margins given, you know, given they clearly have the capability to do that given their gross margins? So I, and I hear you on that. And that's, it's always so important to kind of, you know, have those Excel spreadsheets and, and figure out the, the art of the possible. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I love yeah. that. Um, Eric, you know, but, it's funny because I mentioned yeah. it before, you know, Eric Sprott used to call, he said he'd get into a, a, a meeting with, with a company. I was, I, I say it, it's a great saying, get into a meeting with the company. He's like, yeah, I know your guidance and yeah, all this. Put your rose colored glasses on. That's the always say, oh. put the rose colored glasses on in five years. Where are you? Not realistically, Rose, rose colored glasses. Where are you in five years? <laughs> I always thought it was a great way to, if you really like something and you suspect, as is the case with Levi's and you got to lead the horse to water and, you know, mm -hmm. you're just sort of like, well, is 25% EBITDA margins even possible? Well, there's my rose colored glasses if it's possible, right? Love it. <laughs> Love it. Let me ask you this though, to buy a pair of jeans, don't we have to be able to go to a store? I mean, can you really put yeah. on a yeah, you can't. Well, I mean, look, pe don't get people are buying them online and then return. The kids are much more into buying online and returning, okay. um, like more so than I am. Like me, I, I buy online and I buy online from places near me so I can walk there and return. I don't like having to 
go to a Canada posting and having to return, but it's a reopening, it's a reopening play. So, I mean, that's really what it is for me that as the world reopens, people are going to be going there. They are going to be buying stuff there. Um, they are still, uh, they are still selling, you know, right now, I think, and obviously, you know, last quarter, we're still sort of in this COVID thing. Last quarter, they did 1.3 billion in sales at the bottom. They were only doing 500 million in quarterly sales. Um, that 1.3 is about down 15% from where they peaked pre-COVID. Um, okay. I'm interested to see what happens when the stores are all open. I do think the kids are going back to malls because malls are a social experience for them. But mm -hmm. like even me, like I'll buy, you know, a dress shirt online or a pair of gloves online or, you know, but I won't buy a pair of jeans because I got it that the, the bottoms have to be, you know, hemmed. <laughs> like how am I going to get the, how am I going to get the bottoms hemmed if I get right. You know, like that, that, that's like, I'm not talking about fancy tailoring. I'm saying, you know, unless I can get the length I need, what's the point? I, I'm not capable of doing that myself. Um, and right. so, you know, I, I think, but I think the kids are more used to it. And I think the, uh, I think as stores reopen, they, they want to go shopping. They want to be interesting. in style. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's interesting that they're still 15% below, you know, the, the prior peak. Yeah, and they'll, right. they'll all tell you, all these guys will tell you, like we own Skechers too, they'll all tell you, oh, you know, we're still 30% of our stores aren't open. Like right. Canada's like the worst, Europe's like the second worst. If if you have sales in India, forget it. Um, but it's always funny, these companies that are North American centric, they always call out Canada as being the worst, which is frustrating. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well... Yeah, it's it's uh, it, it feels like it is a bit behind in, in terms of the pandemic. I think everybody's mm -hmm. probably on the same page for that. Um, I didn't think I'd, we'd spend so much time on Levi's, but I guess just with my background and, and talking about it is, is certainly helpful. So one more question on Levi, which is um, how's management? What's the company management like? You know, the management's been there for a long time. Um, I haven't gotten a chance to speak to them only because, uh, sorry, I did um, I did do a Zoom call a few months ago but uh they're not very easy to get hold of the the, the business is still uh 55 owned by the by the family you know mm. dating back you know over 100 years uh they're sort of consistent 10b5 sellers uh of the stock so if you do get a chance to speak to them it's usually because you know someone's holding a consumer products conference um and you, you can get on a zoom call uh, but management's been there for a long time. They've been turning uh, margins around for a long time. It only recently went public. Before that, we used to follow and own um, uh, the debt when it was a private company. Uh, but they, they do, uh, they have recognized the opportunity of the first big denim cycle we've seen in like seven, eight years. Uh, and, you know, it, it's funny because they'll, they'll tell you, they'll say like, you know, it's funny, the, these older brands, you know, skinny jeans were in for so long that, the, you know, we used to keep these around as heritage brands. And like, there were times where we were just thinking like, why don't we get rid of them? We're not selling them. And all of a sudden brands, they didn't even try. Just people started going towards the relaxed fit, you know, jeans on the website and stuff. And they were like, we just had them there. Right. And just people yeah. started gravitating to them. So, you know, I think that because they have so many heritage cuts that, that, you know, they don't have to force designs on people. They can see, they can see what's coming to them. And I think that's actually put them ahead of the curve. So other people are out there talking about, you know, the looser cuts, but Levi's was really the first one to have it just because they happen to have all these heritage brands on the site. Got it. 
Well, I mean, I, I love my old Levi's and I wore them so much they're worn out. Mm-hmm. And I, and, and I'm talking from like a that's long time ago. That's a look though. That, that's it's a look, right? Look. I want that really faded denim, but real denim. I don't want soft denim. I want the denim that kind of keeps just, you know, holds you in a little bit. You know, what's like funny. Real jeans. So you if can Levi's go. Is listening, I want them. I want jeans. Yeah. So, so you can actually go. So the new Levi's concept is actually, you can go there and you can custom the finish, right? So what they do is they'll import the cut and then they use a laser process, which allows for faster turnarounds to create, you know, those little, you know, cool rips, like, you know, big rips, small rip, the little free rips, you know, some of the, some of the, um, the coloring, like the fading and stuff. Yeah. And they can do it so quickly now, whereas before they used to have to hold uh, inventory. They're like the first ones to to do this. Hmm. So we'll see if that translates to sales. It bears watching, but because they only really came out with it last year, it hasn't really stood stood the, uh, you know, the commercial, you know, the commercial test. Yeah. yeah. But, but it, it is interesting because it's, it's good for their margins. It's good for their turnaround. It allows them to fast adjust to different fades and, different fades and different, um, you know, different wear and tear looks very quickly. So you can actually go in there and you can, you can pretty much customize a gene that'll be, you know, in your hands in a week. Right. So it's, Mm -hmm. they're doing interesting things. I hope it translates to us making more money on the stock, but. um, But but Brandon, it's it's interesting though that you, you know, that's one of your reopening trades and it does make sense in the sense that, you know, um, the stores obviously aren't open yet. That could be a really nice tailwind um what other reopening trades are there I, I, and i think part of your note as well to your investors is saying that um that the stay-at-home trade is kind of done is that true to you yeah i think the stay-at-home trade's done so a couple reopening trades um i think that uh, again building products are reopening trade right how many houses have now been bought but not yet built the last thing to go in there will be the, you know, Caesar stone. It'll be the kitchen counter, right? Mm. So their growth is ahead of them. The doors, the interior doors, that's ahead of them, right? So there's a lot of stuff that the work from home thing's interesting. Like all these banks, even Silicon Valley, even like the most forward thinking, you know, oh no, we love Zoom and we love Slack and everything. They're calling them back to work now. So what's actually interesting is that that work environment's going to have to change, right? You're not going to be able to sit shoulder to shoulder in a in an in a crowded office hoteling situation. The cubicles are coming back. The cubicles are coming back. The old Dilbert cubicles, office space, they're coming back. And the place to go for that is probably Steelcase. Steelcase is is you know historically the leader in office systems, office furniture. One analyst follows it again, completely abandoned wow. space. Yeah, it's completely abandoned space. Brand name, high ROE, great financial metrics, made their way through it. We actually spoke to them a couple of weeks ago. We all spoke to a large private competitor as well, probably the largest private competitor in the space, saying, you know what? I, mean, I don't want to say we're going to get back to our old record uh, levels, but there's there's changes coming. People are coming back to the office. You know, you, we're seeing we're starting to see that we're going to see some serious order order flow. You know, towards the end of this year, middle of next year. And if they that stock used to be at twenty bucks at fourteen today, and mm-hmm. I would argue that their next year could be a record year. Uh, you could see that stock make that fifty percent move even from here on a reopening trade. So, you know, what's the ticker, Brandon, what's the ticker? uh, It's S it's S C S S C S. Yeah. And, and the players in there, the the biggest players there were Steelcase, Herman Miller and Noel. 
and Herman Miller just decided to buy Knoll, which is odd. There hasn't been a major expansion, uh, a major merger in that space forever. Yeah. Um, and I think there's going to be a culture clash because Noel, a big part of Noel's business um, was like Holly Hunt and Vladimir Kagan and all these sort of, you know, super fashion forward furniture, like re residential furniture um, designs. Mm -hmm. And Herman Miller had some, you know, the Barcelona chair and a few other interesting uh, uh, things, but, you know, they were a little more, their bread and butter was definitely a little more focused on standard office. I'm, I'm not sure how that merger is going to pull out uh, culturally, but steel cases, you know, they're your market leader, go-to guy, steel Eddie, you know, sort of steady Eddie, brand name guy, um, strong balance sheet. Uh, and then of course the other, the other good ones, a private company used to be public here called, um, uh, called Technion, uh, and Technion is, uh, they're also, you know, they're big four. Now there's going to be a, a big three, which is, yeah. So mm -hmm. global slash Technion is the, is the big private company. That's a Canadian okay. company. But is, um, is, is Steelcase, I mean, what, what, what has been the majority of their revenue, their, their business? They're, they're mainly, they're probably the, sorry, global Technion is like a hundred percent office furniture, but in terms of the okay. ones, um, Steelcase was probably the most indexed to office furniture, followed by uh, Herman Miller, followed by Noel. Okay, so office furniture, what percentage that would be cubicles if you're saying that's kind of the, the big trend? Well, you're you're going to need new everything. So, it, okay. it won't, yeah, I mean, last year they were selling like, uh, like vinyl partitions, right? Oh, see through yeah. partitions because people wanted to be blocked out but you know you can't just get a new desk system you're going to need a new chair you're going to need you know all these things because because what people have been building on were these sort of like hey look at this long sort of trough of desk and you don't have your own seat you come and you check in and you check out and you bring your laptop and you play that that's that's where everyone was going that open and everyone concept. was going to it, yeah it's an open concept office yeah so open concept where you want to sit densification right, right. save on rent and they said, now we're seeing orders for offices. We're seeing orders for glass offices and stuff, you know, like huh. that's, that's making a comeback now because people, you know, they, 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 they want the privacy. They want the physical barrier. Now um, I'm interested to see how it plays out, but you know, I mean, just, I'm just pulling up the model now, but mm -hmm. if you talk about uh, if you talk about margin of safety, right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If you look at margin of safety, here's a company that you know used to before this happened was, was earning like a buck 70 the stocks at 14 bucks they have no debt they carried a return on equity you know in the high teens they were a cash flow machine they had a big dividend like all the all these things really sort of work into their favor if they did a buck 60 on 3.7 billion dollars two years ago i think they could get back to that number two years from now and the street's only at three billion and 78 cents so i think i got a ways to go here so you know i think that's a great reopening trade and then i also think the ultimate reopening trade is still probably disney so we own a lot of disney that's a great reopening trade um you know before the pandemic they had only started to move to artificial intelligence um capacity and pricing at the parks and parks are like 35, 40% of their business still. So going into the pandemic, everyone thought they could earn 
not including streaming, thought they could earn eight bucks a share and then whatever value you want to put on streaming, put on streaming, which was probably costing them two bucks a share. So if we just took streaming out of the equation, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I got to imagine that $8 probably turns to a 10 now because prices will be higher. Parks, you know, they'll have this AI capability in the parks. Also, they didn't have the Star Wars park opened yet. They didn't have the Avengers park opened yet. They had a lot of expansions that they never got to see at full power, right? Mm-hmm. So you're going to be talking about $10 a share in earnings plus streaming. Well, if $10 a share in earnings is worth 170 bucks, stocks 170 bucks, what's streaming worth? If streaming's worth 60% of Netflix, and I would argue it's worth as much as Netflix, it's worth another 70 bucks. I mean, I could see that thing going at 250. And then the other weird one, because we like Canadian content over here, is um, everyone remembers Molson, Molson Beer, whatever. Well, yeah. Molson's now part of Molson Coors uh, in the States. And, and that company's been very, in my opinion, poorly managed. Um, they've lost some market share. Their margins are half of what their competitors are. And their multiple is like two thirds of what their competitors are. But the interesting thing about Molson is they index higher to bars and restaurants. They have a greater percentage of their revenues are bars and restaurants. That's mm-hmm. a better reopening play, I think, than, mm-hmm. you know, than their competitors. If they could get multiple equivalents, the stock would go up 30, 40%. If, wow. they, could, if they can get margin equivalents, it could go up another 30, 40%. So again, rose colored glasses. Uh-huh. If they can do InBev's <laughs> margins, yeah. right? So if they could do InBev's margins, and they can get InBev's multiple, right? Yeah. Then, you know, two years from now on what I would call, consider fairly conservative, almost no growth estimates to get to InBev's margins, the earnings per share go from four to, uh, to, to seven, eight bucks in earnings. If mm-hmm. they get that multiple, that seven bucks trades at 17 to 20 times earnings. Now you're through 120, 130 bucks and the stock is still, you know, the stock's still at uh, 58 bucks. So it's interesting, but if they're going to earn four bucks a share, I don't know how much risk I have from 55. Someone will take this thing over, you know, at, at some point if they keep, you know, limping along like this. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to go back to Disney just for one second, mm-hmm. though. Um, what do you make of ESPN and, and what we could expect there? Well, I think ESPN is still a really good brand. They got the best. Um, they got the best rene- renegotiation with the NFL um, when that renegotiation renegotiation happened a few weeks ago. Um, I think it's a great brand. I think that I think gambling will help because people are gambling on all sports. So uh, I think that'll probably mm-hmm. help. Uh, it'll help the brand. It'll it'll help. Um, it should help viewership because you see a lot of sports broadcasting is now being tailored towards gamblers. Uh, the bigger concern isn't isn't ESPN, and of course there is some risk. Like they're trying to offset ESPN Plus, um, which is subscription, with you know cord cutting. Where you know if you get a cord cutter, they might cut their ESPN, um, or they would cut their ESPN. They might not renew as a as a streaming service. The bigger risk is probably um, uh, the uh, you know the cable the cable business. That's where you start to run into some trouble there with ABC. It's it's not it's not a huge portion of their revenues or valuation, but it's worth bearing an eye. I mean, the good news is like the street's giving it up for dead. So I don't think that there's, you know, there's not a lot of risk if it does end up doing poorly because that's built into okay. uh, expectations. 
Yeah, that, that's what I was going to ask you. I mean, that's what really hit the stock going back. I think it's now at least two and a half years ago when there were so many negative calls on, on the SCP. And I'm, I'm and there's a huge portion of the revenues. Yeah, it was. It was a yeah. huge port. People would look at this like, oh, my God, ESPN and ABC add up to like half the revenues. I wouldn't have thought it was that much. Yeah, it isn't now, but it was back then. Right. And and, and yeah, but to your point, and which which is always so important for stocks is, um, you know, it's built into the expectations. Yes. And that's different from a couple of years ago in terms yeah. of what like. And that's been the problem with, with big tech. You could sit there and say, this is a great company that's growing at 30%. You know, Shopify is a great company that's growing at 50%. Well, that's great. But if the street expects them to grow by 60%, you're going to lose a lot of money. If the street expects them to grow by 40%, you're going to make a lot of money. Like, you know, Carl Icahn had this great saying I saw a couple of years ago. He's like, I don't know if it's a great saying, but he would just say, he would say like, everyone knows what the good companies are and everyone knows which companies are doing well. Like the key is to find the companies are doing well that no one thinks are doing well, right? Like that's right. that's the, the the point of the exercise. You can make a lot of money short term, you know, buying the momentum in the in sort of the well known narrative, but long term, like Tesla, you know, it, it's like Tesla when we we're talking earlier. Four hundred bucks, you know, the earnings beat stopped. The stock still went to eight, nine hundred bucks. You're like, why is this thing doubled in two quarters? No one's raising their estimates anymore. The mm -hmm. earnings are well known. They're not blowing away earnings. It's because those expectations were already built into the stock. What the stock doubling with no expectations going up was telling you that they had to beat the expectations. Right, right. But so let me actually get your take then, though, on a couple of those large cap stocks, even though that's not necessarily your focus. Um, Apple. Um, Google, Facebook, the, some of the fangings, can they still move higher? Well, Apple, Apple, I don't like uh, as much anymore. Apple's growth over five, six years has not been what people think it is. Like every quarter they beat by a bit and last, you know, they went down, then they came back up because of COVID. The biggest problem Apple has is that it's cyclical now. And it's going to cycle to its iPhone releases. And when you're cyclical, you probably shouldn't trade it a big multiple. It is a cash machine. I'll give them that. Um, but I don't, I don't see it as a particularly interesting company right now. Um, Google's sort of in the middle. Um, they're trying to catch up on, on Google web services. I think YouTube uh, is people look at YouTube and say, well, that's as worth as much as a Netflix. But I do find that, uh, that on YouTube, obviously the, um, the advertising and stuff is getting a little, uh, a little much, but YouTube's a great platform. I don't know how much further, uh, you can go and search at this point. So I'm, I'm on the fence there. Cause I think the valuation's reasonable. Um, and then Facebook, we do like, we own some Facebook. I think Facebook's earlier. I think Facebook's making the shift, um, from social to commerce. And I think that that's a, that's a huge thing on Instagram. You just, you hit the, you hit the, the ad, or whatever, it takes you right to a commerce site. They're starting to do payments. It becomes very seamless. They're integrating commerce into uh, they're integrating commerce into uh, WhatsApp and Instagram and stuff like that. So I think that that's um, it's there's a whole other leg to Facebook. I don't know about um, virtual reality. Zuckerberg's really a fan of virtual reality right now, but I think that there's a even if you discount that to zero, I think there's a whole other leg that Facebook has uh, yet to show us in terms of the commerce capability uh, via the messaging and via Instagram and stuff like that. Any big picture concerns, though, with respect to the regulatory environment? Or is that just something that we're going to continue to talk about, but nothing actually 
gets impacted. I think it, I think it's tough to do much for a regulatory lockdown on Google or on Facebook. If I'm worried about regulatory, it's more Apple. Um, Apple is really uh, showing itself to be something of a bully on the App Store, and they're starting to get taken to court on it. And, um, you know, the, the argument they always had was that, you know, for things to be interoperable, things to be perfectly interoperable, we need mm -hmm. to police it. That costs money. So we're going to charge 30% in order to do that. Right. And then the latest battle with Epic Software, which is, which is not just their games, they're the platform that almost all the games run on. And what they were doing is saying, okay, well, we're offering for free because Apple managed to get all of their people to offer free product and then go with add-ons where they make more money off of consistent add-ons than if you just paid $2 up front. So what Epic did was they said, well, we're gonna let you buy upgrades via tokens and you can buy those tokens anywhere. It doesn't have to be on the app store, right? And Apple said, forget that, mm -hmm. right? We don't want you uh, to do that. You're bypassing our revenues and Epic's attitude is, well, you don't provide any value once a person has the game and, and just the add-ons and stuff. So we should be able to do it anywhere. And by the way, you don't charge Netflix. You don't take a slice of Netflix's, you know, 10 bucks a month. And there, then Apple says, well, that's because you can buy Netflix on TV. It doesn't have to be, you can use the account in multiple places. So you have this, you have this whole battle going on. Mm -hmm. And I, my attitude is like, well, you know, you remember maybe when Microsoft got slapped on the wrist for embedding uh, explore for free on the operating system and Netflix said that's not fair right? right and what you're seeing with Apple now is just imagine if Apple if Microsoft you know 20 years ago said hey here's that's a pretty good video game if you want that video game to work on a Microsoft computer you're gonna have to pay us 30 percent of every sale if you want if word if you want to if you want word to work on your computer word you're gonna have to pay us 30 percent of every sale like people would like the, the Federal Trade Commission would have had a fit had they done that. And yet that's exactly, that's exactly what Apple's doing now. So they're running into trouble there. The whole sort of protect people's privacy, people don't know this. So when you get that little warning on your phone saying, do you want this site to track you and all that stuff, right? Like yeah. Apple tracks you, you have to go deep into the settings meta, uh, menu to switch Apple's default will track you for ads to not track you. But if you're Facebook or anyone else, you, you have to actually go, you have to opt in. Right. But with Apple natively, you have to opt out. That's not fair. They're playing by a different set of rules, mm -hmm. you know, themselves. And then you've got the issue. Of wait, Brandon, I'm, yeah. I'm, wait, Brandon, I'm, I'm sensing that you have found that in the settings and have opted out. I have, but I'm more technologically proficient than you know, <laughs> than me. And you, you have to go deep in. You have to go deep into the set. Where? I, I, well, I'll, you know, I'll you, you, gonna, you almost I'm have to. Look. You almost have to Google it. But okay. you know, the. I mean, even I don't remember offhand, but yeah. I, I can guide you through it. But I don't remember offhand. But the other thing that you that you run into now is. Um, you know, when they come up with Apple Music, right? So a lot of people have Spotify. I have Apple Music just because it's simpler. But Spotify came out in a congressional hearing and said, look, we got a problem because we got to pay royalties to the artists. They have to pay royalties to the artists. So we can charge 10 bucks a month. So what are they going to do? They're going to match us at 10 bucks a month. But the 10 bucks we charge, they want three of that. So we got a problem now because we got to, we're only getting seven. They're getting three of the, ten, the of the 10 you're spending on us. 
we get seven, they get three, and then they can they can charge 10 themselves. Hell, they can cut it down to seven if if the economics work at seven. They're like, that's unfair competition. So I think that you could see a crackdown on the Apple App Store. And that's obviously like a, a an 80% margin business. So I am I'm quite bearish on Apple. I like Google, not enough to own it. I like Facebook enough to own it. I think Amazon's probably going to have to churn through that reopening narrative working against them. Um, but Amazon's probably one worth revisiting. I think Microsoft's a great company. Um, you know, they're more sort of uh, uh, one which I'd like to buy at a, at a better price. But they're kind of like a Google. Like, um, there are points where I'd buy it and, and stuff, but they're fairly reasonable. Like, of the big ones, it's really Apple. Apple, I'd stay away from for a while, and Amazon, I'd stay away from for a bit. And Facebook's okay. the one I own. Got it. Um, Brandon, this has been amazing. It's almost been an hour. I don't think okay. I can take any more of your time. Gotcha. But I want to do this again and sooner than later because I still wanted to get your take on. Um, you know, and for our viewers to understand, you run an income fund, a founders fund, and a select fund. So you had some interesting comments in your newsletter on um, your expectations for yield and how to make, uh, you know, some interesting fixed income investments. Mm -hmm. So that we haven't talked about Bitcoin. And I didn't even get to ask you the fact that you're in gold or, you know, in some of the commodities, that's more your inflation hedge or trade, but oil. So did you invest in oil? Uh, stay away from oil. I, I just I, I oh. think that this is I. It, it's been a great run because a lot of things shut down and and you know oil. Look, oil cyclical. Um, it always has been cyclical. It always will be cyclical. Um, the question is, what's the top and bottom of that cycle? The marginal cost of a barrel of oil, marginal, not including you know exploration, just sort of the cost to pull a, a barrel of oil that you know is in there today, is about twenty five bucks. So I don't even start getting interested in oil till it hits 30 bucks. Um, and I'm probably looking at, at selling it at 70. I don't need to stick around all the way to 90, but, but historically you're talking about three to one. So now's not the time uh, to buy oil. Um, fixed income's tricky right now. Uh, yields are horrible. Terms are too long. There's no covenant protection, but, but, what but, but we've always been good at finding like these little corners of the, of the bond market that can provide outsized gains without taking outsized risk. Mm -hmm. um, right now, probably the most interesting part of the bond market is these tech stocks have sold off. They've all in the last year, a lot of them issued convertible bonds. And those convertible bonds might as well be investment grade. But because the arbitrageurs, uh, they will sell the bonds off along with the stock. We're buying companies with... 20 billion and you know companies that are earning money with 20 billion in market cap a billion in debt a billion and a half in cash you're getting a two and a half percent yield which sounds low that's better than investment grade and if the stock comes back you're going to make like 15 20 percent so it's i'm willing to i'm willing to take a little less yield um right now in order to have a big gain the, the what, what we say is like look i'd rather buy a two percent yield with a potential 25% gain, then buy a 4% yield with a potential maybe seven if it gets, you know, if, if the yeah. yield compresses a bit. So um, that's tricky. It's very difficult for a retail investor to, to run those strategies. That's our alternative income fund. It's uh, it's it's a liquid alt, so it's pretty easy to buy. Um, you know, our, our founders fund is our other main strategy. 
Uh, it's a long short. It tends to run about 50, 60 percent net long. There's there's option overlays on the on the uh, on the short side. So um, that's one uh, where you're really relying on our on our stock picking um, and, and now sort of a bit of a macro call on, on gold. Um, but that that's our largest fund. It, it tends to do a good job keeping up with with good markets and, and outperforming on bad markets. Um, and our select fund, we don't normally recommend. It's it's a very high risk fund for high risk investors. Um, it's it's not that the terms have lower liquidity. Um, it tends to be a little more long only. But I'm not that comfortable. Uh, putting people who I don't know very well in that fund because you have to be able to to handle an average of four percent a month moves and th oh. those are yeah you know, that's four percent a month is is a lot so it's yeah. been a great it's been a great fund it's been our best returner um, but it but it is high risk and in certain I, I, high risk I love I, I love the fact that you I love the fact that you say you don't really recommend it to many people. <laughs> I have to believe that someone, that. yeah. I mean, I, I just, I have to believe someone can handle like a 30% yeah. drawdown in, in two months without completely, uh, without completely freaking out, right? Because yeah. some people, yeah. you know, they lose that and it ends up being a, light, a life changing, you know, amount of my, I, I just, I honestly just don't want that kind of responsibility. So, yeah. you know, and it's, so our, our founders fund is going to liquid all soon. Um, so that'll give people weekly liquidity in uh, in the liquid alt version of, of that fund um, and that we consider our medium risk. But the select fund will always be uh, a limited partnership. It's, it's you know, I wouldn't say it's invitation only, but it's kind of close to it. Um, so but Brandon, let me ask you, though, for, for viewers who are listening to all of this, um, do they contact your firm directly or or do financial advisors sell your funds? Uh, we do have some, we do have some, most of our investors call us directly, it's high net worth, but, but the liquid alt is available like any liquid alt fund through an advisor. Um, and our Venator investment trust is also offered through advisors. That's the one that's going to be converting into a liquid alternative, which means you won't, I don't think you, you don't even have to be an accredited investor anymore. Uh, to get into that fund. We'll still have the same strategy running in a limited partnership on the side. Um, but, uh, but these funds are going to be a lot more, a lot easier to, a lot more accessible to the retail investor once we, uh, so the, the income fund's already a liquid alt, but once we turn the investment trust into a liquid mm -hmm. alt as well, that should be in the next month. Okay, great. Um, so that people have access. That's always a nice thing. Yeah. Uh, Brandon, this is, yeah, this has been amazing. Can you believe that it has been about an hour and we used to try to condense like to five, six minutes on TV. I know, so. I know. crazy. Crazy. I, crazy. I love it. And you're it. just I down love... the street. So, I mean. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Well, one day we'll just be able to do this in person. Yeah, yeah. We'll just, uh, you can come, we can set up in my boardroom or something. <laughs> That'd be fun. A traveling yeah. studio. I only need uh I only need a good light. There you go. And we got a we got a painting in the we got a painting in the back that I think is by the same uh, by the same photographer or a, what a, a photographic yeah. art in the back, same photographer. Perfect. We'll do it. <laughs> we'll do it. All right, Brandon. I'll I'll let you go. Thank you so so much. It's been amazing insight and knowledge. So thank you. All right. We'll see you soon. Thanks. Okay.